welcome one and welcome all to Corner Gas Fan Corner's Jackass Cast, which still doesn't sound right in my English accent, but it's the only one I've got and it's the only one I can do, so you're just going to have to lump it. Now we've got a very special first episode for you, a very special guest, but before I get to that I should probably point out uh, to anyone that surfed into this podcast on my website by accident what it's all about. Well, we're talking about Corner Gas, which is Canada's greatest sitcom. Uh, It ran for six seasons, six record-breaking seasons, and then they made a movie, and now we're being treated to an animated version of the show. The show tells you the story of a little community of oddballs that live in a town of Dog River, Saskatchewan, now, if you want all the proper details, all the meaty details, go to my website, www.cornergasfan.com, and uh, you can find out all the back information you need. Because if I give it to you now, then we're going to be here all night, and I've got things to do, and I really need the lavatory. If you haven't seen the show before, you can watch it on Amazon Prime, where it's streaming as we speak. Uh, if you subscribe to that, go and watch the show. They've got the original six seasons of the live-action show and the movie. Um, if you don't subscribe to Amazon Prime, then go and subscribe, watch the show and the movie, and then cancel a subscription or get one of those free month trials. That'll be long enough. That'll be fine. And then uh, they don't need any more of your money. They've got loads. But then perhaps, perhaps I haven't thought that through because sometimes when these podcasts blow up, you start getting free stuff, don't you? So perhaps I should be saying, go and subscribe to Amazon Prime this very instant for all the fantastic services it provides and all the great movies and shows you can watch, including Canada's greatest, Corner Gas and Corner Gas the Movie, available now with every subscription. And do not subscribe to Netflix because it is rubbish. Yeah, that ought to do the trick. If you know uh, where to send these recordings, where you get your free things, if you could let me know, answers on a postcard. And uh, if I uh, if I get my free stuff, then you can come around for a cup of tea and we'll, we'll watch Corner Gas. So for the initiated, this next interview is going to be very exciting because I spoke to the amazing Mr. Andrew Carr, who's been a writer on the show since the very beginning. He's now a supervising producer, uh, as well as a writer on the animated show. He co-wrote the movie. Um, He wrote many of your favourite episodes of the show. Uh, He used to be a stand-up comedian. He's worked on other shows like Hiccups, Brent Butt's other fantastic sitcom, and Little Mosque on the Prairie. He's done loads of stuff. So I spoke to Andrew about uh, corner gas and his career in general um, there's lots of interesting information so keep keep listening there's a little tease at the end that might prick up a few ears so here's Andrew and uh, enjoy the interview now I'm going to have to drop in something here because uh, in my infinite wisdom I decided I'd cut off the beginning of the interview and it's a bit jarring going straight into it so um, I'm going to have to drop in a little intro uh, it's going to sound a little bit different you know, the levels won't be quite the same because i'm not clever enough to try and make it sound like uh, it's seamless so uh here, here we go yeah. <clears throat> hello andrew carr welcome to corner gas fan corners jackass cast and uh you are in fact the very first guest on the show so congratulations on that and uh i suppose congratulations on the leo award 
nomination. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. You know, so it's, but it's, it's, that's your third one. Third nomination. Brent and I won one for the live action uh, co-write that we did. Yeah. Uh, and then I was nominated for um, his other show, Hiccups, and then uh, this one for the animation. So three different shows, actually, when, when it comes down to it. You're both up against each other for this one. We are. So if it comes to a draw, how are you going to decide? Uh, I don't know. It's not well, first of all, it's not looking good because his um, the script that he or he won the Canadian Screen Award with is the yeah. same script uh, he's I'm up against now. So I'm like, uh oh, it's already a tested winner. So wow, yeah, but maybe uh, is there anywhere I could send like a a, a couple of quid, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody? Yeah, just a little brown envelope. <laughs> yeah, little nod to it. I, I was wondering whether a game of tiddlywinks would sort it out. I know he's pretty handy with the uh, arm wrestling. I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to uh, give me the edge or anything. But uh... Well, I suppose as fans, we're all winners, whoever wins. Uh, so, <laughs> Although you're yeah. up against Hart Snyder as well for um, uh, Shot Glass. Uh, Fred did the all the voices for it. It's oh, episode. I don't know that. Oh, do you not? Yeah, oh, it's it's very good. It's on YouTube. Okay. It's um, lots of awards heading the show's way by the look of it. You're going to wipe the board. There won't be anything left. Yeah. Well, it's it's really uh, it's honor. I mean, it's uh, nice to see that happening for us because uh, it's a show that's been on for so long. And uh, first of all, just to have the fan base that we have is is pretty awesome. I mean, it's astonishing to me, and it's humbling, and it's it's. Uh, an incredible thing to have so many people so loyal to the show and it makes it makes us proud too because i mean one of the things is we really work hard to put the stories together and and the you know we build the staff of people that really care about the show that we're doing so that to me is is a wonderful thing and then the the nominations and the awards are are nice but if you have happy fans i think you have everything you know what i mean yeah. there's a very i've come across handful of people that are really quite loyal yeah, some scarily so, uh, <laughs> but there, there's um, there is a really loyal fan base, and it's just growing now. What with the Amazon viewers and thing kicking off, is is that making a difference? It, it's making a huge difference. It's just funny because um, initially when we had the live action show, it was on CTV in Canada. Uh, we got a lot of letters from people that really uh, loved the show. Obviously, because it was based in Saskatchewan, you know, it was championed by the province because. Not a lot of TV shows were done about a, the province of Saskatchewan or the prairies, et cetera, and the small town thing, et cetera. So a lot of people took it as it was their show. You know, Brent and I have talked about it, and Brent's mentioned it. A lot of people, the, the characters are so archetypal that a lot of people recognize somebody they know, or I know that guy, or I have an Oscar in my town, or and the characters were so um, adored and, and uh, understood, I guess is the best way to put it, that people just uh, locked onto that as well. And then we did have it run in uh, internationally through and through America on WGN, and that got a small fan base as well. Um, and then after that was over, looking for distributors, et cetera, uh, it was challenging because a lot of people were looking at it going, well, we don't kind of understand what's going on here. And so when we got it on Amazon and it lit up, you know, that was just sort of, again, one of those things where you just, it uh, sort of um, reignites what you believed all the time was that there is a fan base out there. They just haven't seen it yet. And uh, now that that's happened, and with Amazon, it just seems to be catching on. It's a word of mouth thing, et cetera. So I think it's wonderful. I discovered the show by accident, being a, a sort of a, 
uh, a movie geek, I suppose, is the politest way to put it. I saw a little advert for the movie, and because it said gas in it and then I'm English, I thought there might be fart jokes involved. So I thought, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's only two. I found two so far. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the first episode on YouTube, which I shouldn't have done, probably, but I did. And uh, I was hooked. I felt the, the, the jokes were so English. Uh, I, I don't know whether that's the, the, the Canadian relationship is very close between yeah. us it's anyway. I believe it is. I started the site two years ago to try and make more people over here aware that the mm. show existed. And, um, and then the plan was to try and see what the process was to get the show shown over here, like a, right. sort of a project, as it were. And I knew that just one person wasn't going to, change it. I wasn't going to get the BBC to suddenly put on a, a show, but it's more about how it goes about and who buys what and why. But it turns out the answer to that is just wait until <laughs> somebody like Amazon goes, I'll have that. Thank you very much. But in doing that, from the get-go, there was half a dozen people, the only six people that were reading my, my blog, that were from the States and were so deeply into the show, sort of grew out from there. And you find all these little pockets all over the world. And I suppose now, do you have to take that into consideration when you're writing? That you, instead of, I suppose initially it would just be a Canadian audience, maybe an American one. The jokes have to be a bit broader, especially coming with season two coming up. Yeah, initially um, in the first couple of seasons of the live action show, it was very much uh, Canadian based in the sense of we had Canadian um cameo appearances and uh, there, there were a lot of Canadianisms in the show and as uh, as the show went along it wasn't so much a mandate but now it was becoming uh, <clears throat> something that would be marketed to an international audience and so they wanted to um, I don't want to say take out but uh, uh, give it more of a universal appeal so to make it less about talking about Saskatchewan, talking about uh, the cities etc and, and, and allow it to be relatable to a broader base uh, so yeah, there is that intent now that there's more of a universal audience, and to to uh, I don't want to say negate it completely, but but just be aware that you know you're dealing with uh, international uh, viewers now, and that you want to get them to understand or comprehend, and and so you know having having a statement or or a line uh, that is sort of uh, local just is not going to wash anymore. Or, or something that's suggested has changed. Sometimes I don't like that. I mean, um, I've watched a lot of international shows, Australia, and I just feel that if I don't understand something, I'll just go, okay, and I'll bypass that and continue on enjoying the show. It kind of frustrates me that everything kind of gets whitewashed now to appeal to a broader audience, to a universal audience, whereas I think if you still have that local or that uh, national flavor, international audiences will understand that, uh, actually appreciate it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, everyone has Google now. You know, something, <laughs> uh, uh, someone comes on, you don't know who that is, you Google, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There is sort of a, a lean towards that. A man, I don't want to say a mandate. I don't, never want to say a mandate because it's not like we go in the, in, and say, okay, we can't do this anymore. Yeah. It's more of well, we're dealing with an international audience. Let's focus, you know, let's keep that in mind. So, I mean, does does it make it harder to write the show? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, as a matter of fact, um, it just opens it up for more ideas. I think as the world grows and technology changes, and and 
things happen. I mean, that that was the interesting thing of the break between the five years of having the live action show and going to animation and the movie in between. But the movie was just one single story in that sense. We did 107 episodes of the live action show. And generally there were three storylines per episode, you know, three and sometimes even four storylines per episode. That's a lot of stories. Uh, and you feel like, geez, maybe I've run out of ideas. So within that five-year break, when we talked about bringing the animation show back, the first thing I, I thought is, what the hell are we going to talk about now? Yeah. You know, but after a five-year break, things change. There's a lot that goes on. Uh, suddenly drones, you know, are a big thing. There's, there's uh, food trucks are a bigger thing than, than uh, before. Uh, there's a lot of things that have happened in that time period. And just attitudes have changed, et cetera. So you can build storylines around around new and different things. And so it hasn't been a struggle to write uh, the show. And I think also uh, with social media, et cetera, the world is international. Writing for people to comprehend around the world is easier now in that sense. You know, people are more aware. Uh, and as I said, with Google, et cetera, information is, is easy to access. So it is easier in that way. But also it's, it's just um, Brent and I have discovered more of a method of writing, which I think has really enhanced the, the creative uh, juices in the writing room as far as it goes. <laughs> I mean, the writer's room is something that's always fascinated me because being a frustrated writer myself, I used to do stand up. And, ah, okay. Uh, writer's room is somewhere I've always wanted to be, a fly on the wall, because I'd imagine yeah. an absolute laugh riot. But watching that video, it's all very sort of streaky. Yeah. <laughs> is is that is that the case or are there times where you're all just falling about laughing and it's a mix of both it's really funny because um one of the things about the writing room i mean it's there's been times where i've sat in the room and you know we're just all belly laughing in the live action show i remember one time specifically we're reading through a script and uh just howling and I just kind of paused for a second. I thought, this is the greatest job in the world. I had my feet up. I had a script in my head. And we were all sitting around desks and just laughing. And I thought, this nothing could be better than what's happening right now. You know, there are days, though, where you have to come up with a script, a storyline, or, or, you know, three stories for a script. And time ticks on, and you start to get a little nervous, or, or and you come up with a challenge and you're frustrated and, and uh, you know, you mentally are exhausted. And, you know, that's part of it as well. And then there's the detail part. Uh, one of our first, one of our writers that we brought in for animation on the first week, I asked her what she thought. And she said, there's a lot of technical stuff she didn't realize. We have a time limit of 22 minutes to, to shoot an episode. We have to break down our acts, first act, second act, third act. There's a page count. There's a scene count. You know, so when you build a storyline, you can't have 20 scenes in the first act. You have to balance things out. And um, so now, in, you know, as well as writing a story, incorporating all the characters, um, having an interesting story, you also now have to break that down to three scenes per act, you know, for these characters to have this happen. And so that's I mean, when you were looking and when you were seeing the, in the room what was going on, we were trying to, you know, work out the beats of, the, of that episode and and make the stories work and at the same time tie them into other storylines and and you know there's a lot of things that go on that um are i call it puns and puzzles of what we do you know we have, yeah. we have a lot of fun with wordplay and and uh and then it's just figuring out the story and getting getting the work and be logical and and etc so um it's a mix of everything but i mean that is i used to get impatient when i was a younger writer i used to go crazy if the story wasn't coming easy yeah 
and there was a veteran writer in the room earlier on, and I'd just be like, you know, shaking, just like, ah. And he said, relax. He said, just relax and be patient and it'll come. You just have to wait for it. It's somewhere, but it's just not there yet. And I've learned now, I've, I've learned now just to, you know, go easy and relax a bit more and, and it will come. So I know that the, the, some of the writers, like uh, Diana Francis, and they've yeah. got background in stand up like yourself. Was that one of the shocks? Is that the, the process of writing a stand up routine uh, is, is a big leap? Like, oh, hell. It's not just writing jokes, man. Yes, yeah. I think I think, um, and originally the the live action show was written. I I recognized in the first uh, three or four seasons of of the show, three seasons for sure. All the writers were either stand ups or improv based performers. So great for comedy. It was awesome for comedy. We really uh, writing experience wise, we were all pretty young. I was really green. Yeah. Brent was pretty green we had a couple of other experienced people there but earlier on uh, i thought the episodes were um a little slower paced uh and a little uh like if i go back and analyze the storylines now uh, as compared to today i go oh wow that was a really loose or that was a rough story yeah. but the jokes were there you know and as time went on we learned the craft of creating story and writing and i thought that the storylines got tighter uh, and the jokes were still there, but it's one of those things that was a learning experience as the show progressed. Yeah. But yeah, originally um, it was all uh, performers, improv and stand-up. And uh, for me, what I learned coming from a stand-up background was if you wrote a really good joke, it was a precious thing. And so you just held on to that. That was a great joke. You know, you can't let that go. And when I got into the writer's room, you know, I would write something and they go, well, that scene doesn't work. And you go, but the joke is so good. Yeah. You know, in my head, I was like, oh, my God, you know, you're throwing away a perfectly good joke. And then I came to realize afterwards uh, there's a million of them. And that's one of the things uh, I learned from the the veteran writers in there, Mark Farrell and, and uh, Paul Mather and Kevin White was uh, there's another joke around the corner, you know, in, in that sense of, of writing scenes, et cetera. So. I learned to just let that go. It was hard at first. I learned to let that go. And then just now, now it's just like, nope, that doesn't work. Throw it out. You got to kill your darlings. You got to kill the precious stuff. But oftentimes something better or more or more than often something better comes along as far as so scene. you're best off creating the scene first and then adding the jokes to, to match the scene. Yeah. As far as story writing goes and, and comedy goes, and Brent has said it too. It'd be great if somebody could create the stories because we can write jokes all day. Everybody's funny. So throwing jokes in, I mean, scripts get punched and, and edited and, and uh, polished. Uh, but to find stories, to continually find stories is, is the challenge. So, yeah, if you can find a good story and write the story, don't worry about the jokes. Obviously, if they if you have them, that's great. If they're in there, that's great. But don't worry about the jokes. We're more concerned about the structure of the of the episode and the show. Uh, and then after that, we can dress it up with jokes all day. Yeah, you know. that reminds me of something that uh, I met with Brent in September. I came over to Vancouver, and oh wow! Um, one of the things he said about the new show, I, I, I watched loads of videos and interviews and things, and he said the animated show has to be uh, rooted in the reality that was created in the live action show. Yeah, so you, you can't have corner gas in space. That sucked because. <laughs> Because on the blog, I try and get people involved and I want fans to think, like, send me 
pictures you've drawn, send me scripts you've written, send me fan fiction, whatever you like. So to try and get them going, I started writing my own script, which was Corner Gas in Space. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, I thought we could mash up Star Trek with Corner Gas. So Brent was Kirk, Hank was Scotty, I think. And and, and it was all based around the idea that I I thought that uh, basically the beginning of the show was in Corner Gas. The usual three-way conversation leaning up against the corner, blah, blah, blah. But that was actually inside the holodeck. (laughs) there's a there's they all disappear through a a fridge in the back when there's there's an emergency thing oh captain to bridge so they go go and walk through the fridge and then it all disappears and and then then they're on the spaceship so i I said to brent said right i don't agree with you and i wanted to start an argument just for interest sake more than anything and he went having it what's your take on that (laughs) 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 <laughs> he said yeah you could do it but it'd have to be an entirely different show i suppose the question is do you think you can be broadered with the animation now to, and uh, to allow that sort of or do you really have to to have that reality to make everyone want to follow along and in, enjoying the show yeah i think that uh i agree with brent in the sense that the animation still has to be anchored in uh what we have now has to be anchored in in what we had you know, in the live action show. Obviously, we can go to space in the in the, the fantasy sequences, et cetera. I mean, that was the greatest thing about the animated aspect of it was a lot of ideas that we thought of in the live action show were like, oh, we can't, we don't have the budget to do what we want to do. <laughs> a lot of times we, uh, the production was amazing at doing it. Like there were things that they did. Uh, the Lego episode where Hank builds the town in Lego. Yeah. I remember going down into the production office and there were five or six people pulling apart boxes of Lego to build Lego. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh my God, what have we done? They didn't seem too happy out there to be doing it. But I was like, oh my God, what have we done? And in one of the other episodes, uh, Karen and Davis with coffee and making coffee and Davis scamming and scheming his way out of making coffee. We had a scene where they flew off to see how coffee beans were made they were Lacey was going to teach them how to make coffee and so we just wrote the scene in with a hut and all these things etc and and then I went into um, the sound stages and they were building a hut and I was like oh my god in one sentence you know we have all these guys building huts (laughs) so the power of doing that is amazing so that's the great thing about the fantasy sequences corner gas in space would be probably a fourth evolution of the show if that was to be the case so um (laughs) i mean anything is possible i think if if there's a fan base for it but it was one of those it's one of those things where you you'd have to sit and talk and reimagine oh taking it back a bit stand up you you gave up stand up to write for tv or i had always been uh interested in writing um i think one of one of things about doing stand-up was i had been told and i felt that i was a strong comedic writer i had a friend actually say that i was like the architect of jokes you just give me the pieces and i could put together the joke so like brent said if you want a joke that's four feet tall and sits in the corner and is three feet wide ask andrew and he'll manufacture the joke for you (laughs) i need a joke for this sort of thing and then i i kind of took pride in that and i think when i started writing for the show i was in my late 30s and uh, it was also a time period where I felt like I'd run my course in comedy and stand-up. It's, it's, uh, 
a lot of touring, it's a lot of traveling, et cetera. And I was just like, I, I really, I love comedy, but uh, the travel, et cetera, you know, was a lot for me. And so I, I wrote a couple of scripts, transitioned, and, and at that point, I really wasn't sure what I, what I could do with them. And so I wrote them and I just passed them around to all my comedy friends. And I said, here, read these, let me know what you think. So I gave them to Brent, and uh, one of them was a news radio with Dave Foley in it, who's yeah. Brent knows. And uh, he knows the show, and he said, this is really on point as far as what news radio is. He said, I think you did a really good job. So when he got the show, he said, I really want you to write on this show, because we were both from Saskatchewan, both from small towns, both had a comedy background. I had these scripts. And I said, yeah, sure. So uh, he said, give me all your material. And he went to bat for me with CTV. They didn't know who I was. Uh, they read the material and uh, he proposed, I think, that we write, co-write a couple of scripts. So the first season, we I co-wrote one with him. And uh, and I thought that was going to be it for the first season. Then he contacted me and said, we're going to do another one. Will you co-write another one with me? And I did. And uh, after the first season, they were like, yeah, do you want to write for the show? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I still couldn't believe it. It was funny because I second season was I kept contacting Brent going, Am I still writing for this show? Like I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And they're like, yeah, you're writing. And I'm like, okay. And are you sure? Are we? And they're like, yeah, good God. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a transition to, to writing that, for me, was uh, ideal. I mean, it's, in, it's exactly what I wanted to do. Took some adjustment. I had a learning curve. I mean, uh, I really have to say I, I uh, am grateful to Kevin White and Paul Mather and Mark Farrell for, for putting up with me, first of all, being a young writer. I was pretty precious and, and didn't know the process very well, and I uh, probably put them through the ringer as far as things go. But uh, And Brent as well for, for getting me uh, the opportunity. you know. And then uh, there aren't very many writers that get an opportunity to go on a show that's successful and runs for six years. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, I really struck gold. Uh, in that sense, you know, not only do you get a writing job, but to have one that on a show that was that successful is just amazing. So, how long did you do stand up for? Uh, I did it for about 19 years, less in the last couple of years, as I said, because of the writing. And also, I kind of transitioned from touring to corporate shows. Right. So, there were less shows, more, you know, higher pay sort of things, et cetera. But um, yeah, about 19 years. So, so, so you were doing the show and doing stand-up at the same time yeah from i think uh 2004 was when i started 2003 2004 and 2007 i basically i think i did my last corporate show and kind of went nah i don't think so and i i've, I've been on stage since you know for events just to MC things or just to uh, and uh it kind of tickles the uh the interest of doing it again yeah you get a couple laughs and you go that was fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you go ah. uh, but I still have a file of jokes in my whenever I think of a joke I still have a file on my laptop and I tuck something in there or a topic I think is funny etc cetera, etc cetera. so maybe someday but uh, yeah it, it was uh, the transition was was pretty smooth I got to write and in the, in the meantime I did some stand-up shows and then uh, eventually it was just like uh, I don't I don't want to travel and I'd rather be home and hanging out 10 o'clock at night than be on a stage somewhere so yeah obviously in, in england there is, is quite a large um circuit but I'd, I'd imagine it's much harder to to keep that circuit going in canada being 
in the yeah. market, as you say. Is it does does that have an uh, effect on the material? Does that mean you can keep the material going a lot longer? Does it have a longer shelf life? In that you've got it take you longer to to to, to travel the the circuit and yeah. I, that was the other challenge is um, when I was really young in stand-up, I think like anyone, and you've done stand-up, so I was young and hungry and I was writing material and just going like crazy and really had a lot of drive and a lot of interest. In, and then uh, you hone things, you perfect things, you throw old material out, you bring in new material. And then I got to a point where I kind of had rounded out about an hour of pretty tight show. And then I got lazy and that I just hung on to that show. <laughs> And as you said, you know, if you're touring for a long period of time uh, and a great distance east to west of Canada, uh, you can hold that for a while, you know. And then and then after a while, I just got the, the material got older and I, I didn't write as much. And I think the passion for it was gone, too, in getting up on a stage and doing that. And I actually, as I was doing it, I told some of the younger writers, I was like, dude, do not stop writing. Just do not continue to write stuff, you know, continue to be, uh, do not be afraid to try new stuff because once you actually lock into something and, and it gets too precious, it kind of kills you. You know, you got to keep turning over material. So yeah. I, because when, when I did it, I did it for about three years, but it was the worst time I could because I was at university and, um, I did okay. I was doing all right, but it is, I, I didn't drive or anything, just doing the little circuit in London. You're having to do 20 minutes or you know, five, 10 minutes somewhere and then get to the next club and get to the next yeah. club, then get home and do a full day at uni and pay for things. It was bills that really stopped me from doing it. Yeah. Um, it was also wasn't deemed something that could be done as a, as a, as a vocation, career. as a career. Yeah. My parents would be like, oh, yes, it's very good what you're doing, but, you know, you need a proper job. And I, thought, oh, I had that constantly, mm. constantly had had uh my family couldn't believe i was making a living doing it i had people that are like uh so what do you do for a living i'm a comedian oh okay and that pays well <laughs> and you're like yeah you know yeah and it did i, I mean it was uh, again as time went on it was more and more of a challenge i mean the 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 payment that you were getting to perform in the later years wasn't really covered it was becoming more and more of a struggle to make ends meet yeah, uh, and I just ended 2007. I just ended when social media was really starting to build. So you know, nowadays when I look at some of the comedians, uh, they have you know followers, they have Twitter, they have etc. That they can now create uh, a following and and uh, you know more of a, a social impact to get people to their shows or to sell a CD. Or there's serious FM radio that that yeah. has show that that will give them residuals to play their material. At the same time, that burns their material quicker. As yes. you mentioned, you know, uh, traveling across the country, I could pretty much do the same show with them. It's like you put it on serious FM, and all of a sudden, you got to write some new material fast. So, yeah, which actually would give them incentive, I guess, too, to create new material. So, kind of a positive in a way too. Do you find writing trends in comedy seem to change? I find getting older, a lot of the, the comedians that are on the TV, I don't appreciate them quite as much. And I've, I've, I'm turning into my dad. He used to say, I listen to somebody like uh, Eddie Izzard and go, where are the jokes? There's no jokes. That's not funny. And and I'd go, yeah, that's hilarious. But, and now I'm doing it. I see somebody on the phone and go, 
yeah, I get it, but but it's it's, it's times are changing, and obviously new generations come through different jokes, different styles. Do, do you have to accommodate that, or do you just write what you know? Or the... I think I think you know. I think that was a challenge when I originally started as well was uh, you kind of have to discover who you are as a comedian. I mean, when I originally started writing material, I was writing material. I was a big Dennis Miller fan for his creativity and how he wrote material. There were a few other comedians as well that uh, Paula Poundstone was one I loved uh, for the way uh, she crafted her stuff. And I was sort of, an amalgamation of these comedians that I appreciated and I was writing like them. And then after a while you start to, you kind of start to drift into who you are and write what yes. you uh, are about. And so, you know, there's a period of, of discovery. Um, and I think you just need to be true to that. I think, you know, you can't, even though times are changing, et cetera, uh, if you're changing with them, I guess your material should be changing with that as well. I mean, you're still going to be who you are. You're still going to write about, what you know and, and what you experience and if the world's changing i imagine you'd be changing enough with it that your attitude or perspective or or um uh even your comedy would change with it so i don't think you consciously do that or you have to consciously try and do that it's funny you should say that because I, I had the same thing i used to write oh, i think well uh certain comedians were popular at the time and i i'll my jokes but i'll write like that yeah uh, uh, have you heard of harry hill do you get harry hill over there no uh, he's a very sort of surreal comedian while i was doing it he was very popular i thought well i can do that and i have one tape left of me doing stand i listened to it back now and it was really quite bizarre i obviously thought it was funny at the time but <laughs> no not so much but i can see where i was going wrong and then yeah develop your own voice Everyone's yeah. saying you've got to get your own voice. You yeah. really understand it. Now I understand it. It used to it actually it used to make me laugh because um when we would travel, like when uh when I first started out, they would pair a headliner and a feature uh, comedian up to go on tour together for two weeks somewhere. And then uh they would come back from their tour and the feature would have nuances of the headliner's performance. You know, just the way they stood, the way they put their hands on the mic, those sorts of things, they would kind of pick up from the headliner because there was that influence there. So it was kind of funny to watch somebody go up on stage. In fact, we'd go to the club sometime and a feature comedian would go on and do a set and we'd go, oh, he's been touring with this headliner. I can tell because he's got yeah. these, you know, little uh, joke nuances now or even even just stage performance wise, little nuances of things. And, and it used to be hilarious to see that happen. But that was part of growing and being influenced by outside uh, comedic influences. So, yeah. And imitation is a, a biggest form of flattery, I suppose. In oh, a way. So, yeah. So I suppose you have to be careful of, of stealing as well in some yeah, there's, uh, there were some comedians when I was younger who outright sold jokes. Uh, there was something, obviously, there was parallel thought. I had a joke that I had written um, that someone in California apparently had written a similar joke. And we had never met. And I was touring in the States. And uh, somebody said, that joke is just like this joke. And it's like, well, we, there's no way that we could have ever met or even, yeah. you know. Uh, and so it was just parallel thought in that sense. And then there were a lot of people that were very famous for premise. I, we, I called it premise rubbing, which is basically taking the same joke, 
applying it to a whole different premise, but it's there were a few people who are very talented at going, well, I'm gonna write the same thing, but it's you know, and it's different, but it's not. Yeah. You know, but it's not original thought in that sense. It's not like as you said, or as we talked about, um, discovering your own voice. It wasn't. It was just basically grafting someone else's voice uh to your topic, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, so I, there's I, a bit of that going on. It's interesting um, when you talked about uh, everyone being involved in every episode, what I've learned over the period of time that we wrote the show initially, when we started, when we were pitching ideas, it was just, uh, the individual writing, coming up with an idea and presenting it and then being sent off to outline and, and, you know, formulate the storyline and then sending it to the head writer and then sending it back for notes, et cetera. And then the room would see it in the outline stage often. And then later on in the series, I think around season four, we started to, as a room, beat out the whole storyline as, as a collective. And that was uh, a huge change from my perspective, simply because uh, for two reasons. One, every, you have a collective of minds putting together a story, which is always better than one. And then the second thing was when you have that collective of minds coming together to agree upon a story idea for the other writer to go off and write, when he comes back with it, they're already on board and invested in the story. In other words, um, if you're an individual writer and you come up with an outline and then you bring it into the room, uh, the room might go... You know, it might be foreign to them. They don't understand it as much. You know, they, they might not think. And so there's a lot. They might not think that it's, you know, this story is that great, et cetera. And so there's a lot of changes that can be made a little too late. Whereas if you start from the onset of the seed of an idea with five writers in the room talking about it, uh, there's much more of a collective agreement earlier on so that when you get to the later stages, it's not as problematic because you've already kind of sorted out a lot of issues and it just streamlines the process. And as well, you know, everybody gets their hands in on the jokes early, you know, so it just makes for a much more tight and clever script. And so we followed that process. And I, I, you know, maybe that's the way all rooms have been run in that sense. But we really, um, we follow that script now, that process to this day, and actually to the point now where if we have new writers in the room, like I've had a feedback from a few writers that we've had that are pretty new, that they appreciate the process because they're never left feel, feeling like they've been hung out to dry. Yeah. We, we, we give them as much show as possible to work with so that when they actually start writing their first script in the outlines, they're not scrambling to try and figure out what's going on here, et cetera. It's, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. And they, they, you know, they get the opportunity now to have their own creativity put into a solid structure, I guess, of a script. So I've been thinking recently, you know, but for, certainly for the animated show, anyway, you had a, a good long run up before the first season kicked off so you've got longer to put things together make sure things worked but then obviously you've only got essentially a year to get season two underway and make sure it's the same quality does that process and, and getting them involved and everything does that make it quicker i think it does it's been the i think the greatest challenge we've had with the animation thus far i mean uh, originally coming back the first season it was getting reacquainted with the show and the characters you know after five years you kind of have to get back into who these people are and and uh and so forth and and even stories just just refreshing yourself with how we broke stories and and, and familiarizing yourself back with the process and so after we did we call them story summits where all the writers gather we break five episodes let's say 
and then everyone goes away and outlines and then you know we do everything via email after that yeah. and then we come back together as a group maybe a month and a half later and punch the episodes after they've gone through the first and second draft etc and then there's a break in between there before the next summit so in the live action show we would start in April or May and go all the way to September and you would just bust the whole season and you'd be working constantly on on the scripts and so you were fully invested in this show for four four or five months and then you got your break a little vacation time and end down time before you picked up again and sort of breaking stories so it's challenging here because we visit the you know the writer's room and we get intensely into it and then we step away you know, and then you go back again. And so you're not constantly in it. So there was a challenge initially with that, just just working that way. And now I think it's it's just uh, second nature now for us to, to sit in the room and, and talk about it. Again, like I said, we've we've kind of streamlined our creative process in, in developing story ideas, et cetera. So that's more relaxed. There's no sense of anxiety in that sense. And then even in the writer's room, you know, we'll start talking about things and then we'll get carried off and somebody will have a story about something or something, you know, and we'll just, uh, we'll go off on tangents all over the place and then we'll come back to it and revisit it. And and it just, there's no pressure. There doesn't feel like there's any sense of pressure anymore in that, in that way. So, so do do you, do you have ideas, things that you can't use for a a season or an episode, even you put that aside and keep that for later? Or, yeah. or have there ever been any ideas that have come up that you thought are amazing, really good, but you haven't been able to use or something that got thrown out because of time yep. limitations or something? We had that in second season. We had an episode idea. Generally, what we do is we come up with uh, four or five. We call them blurbs, which is two or three lines or three or four lines that uh, a paragraph. Let's go with a paragraph. A paragraph of what the story is about. And so topically, and then we will send that to the network, you know, for approval, just say, here's what the five ideas that we're working on. And we'll uh, come back and we'll get approval from them and then we'll start breaking them. And then we'll find out that that one just is not working. We had that in season two. We had one that uh, was just like, this uh, this looks like a good idea. And we sat and talked about it and talked about it and went, you know what? It's not going to fly. And then we just go, okay, toss that one out and then uh, bring in another idea. And even then you would think panic would ensue and it, it just doesn't. We just go, okay, what else we got? You know, and then and then we'll pull something together. And we just had it in uh, the writing room this last summit. Uh, we pulled together an idea and uh, it looked like it had promise. And then it was the same thing. It's like, it, it seems like we're trying too hard to make this one work. And so we just went, okay, well, let's put that one away. And uh, and some of them still, you just kind of go, hmm, there's something there. And and what we did was, uh, I think we did that with one episode where we took one of the three ideas and went, well, let's take that idea from here and, and incorporate it into this episode. And that's worked, you know. So there are always bits and pieces of something that work, you know, and we kind of keep a, I've got a file, you know, even if I have an idea that's just like a jumping off point, like, one of the episodes we did in animation was about drones. I just said, we have to, we have to do something about drones. So, you know, let's bring a drone in the, to dog river somehow. And, and so that, that was started the seed of an idea. And then from there, you know, we pulled together an episode. There's always something, but yeah, there's definitely a little file. There's a junk pile, you know, and some of them may never get used, but that's just part of the process as well. 
do you get ideas that work better? Say, say I don't know, say you wrote something for Davis and it didn't work, but you, if you give it to Oscar, then all of a sudden it just... Yeah, oh, yeah. Does, does that have, happen? We had, uh, just in this last script, as a matter of fact, we had a story, a premise of an idea. Yeah, it was like interchangeable parts. And what happens, too, which I think is really cool. I mean, it's, it's a, kind of a neat thing where you pose a, a problem or an idea to, and you say, ah, let's put Wanda and Hank in this. And then you go, okay. And then you go, hmm, uh, it doesn't seem to be working. Well, what if we gave him the same idea to Brent and Lacey? And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, you know? Yeah. And the great thing about that too is it's because the characters are so different, you know, they'll think differently or approach it like Oscar, approaching it as opposed to Lacey. You know, or or putting Oscar and Lacey into a, a storyline together, they're both taking different positions on it immediately. You know what Lacey's going to say because you know the character. You know what Oscar's going to say, or you think you know what Oscar's going to say, and and now you get a whole different scenario if you put Emma and Brent on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, and again, it's it. That's the fun of it. That's just the idea of, uh, and that's what the room is. It's going. What if this happened? What if we use these characters instead of these? And it's just a, a, a big kettle of ideas and, and things just brewing and then, you know, pulling it all together. Yeah. Um, that is the fun of it. And, and it's, it's interesting how that changes when you do that. Yeah. Do you have to still think about character development or does it just happen uh, organically? The interesting thing about Corner Gas is there's no real character arc for these characters there's there's kind of a through line of what they want but there's no real because because it's an episodic show it's not a serial show where there's a long storyline to it where at the beginning they start out and they've learned something and they become a whole different person they never do in this show (laughs) you know um as somebody said you know one week one does uh uh real estate selling real estate the next week she's doing this you know yeah. etc so and then it's a reset at the end of the episode so uh, as far as character development goes we just we kind of determine a moral compass for the character like uh, recently you know we were talking about Hank and Brent had talked to Fred and and Fred believed that Hank was very altruistic he very he very much was honest. He wouldn't want, try to deceive people or trick people. He was very innocent in that way. And and uh, so when we talk about a storyline with Hank, you know, he doesn't, you know, he isn't mean spirited. He isn't, you know, like Oscar would be like jackass, you know, all this other stuff. And that's just not Hank. Um, and so we always have to take that into consideration of, you know, when we're, we're breaking stories. But as far as uh, character development goes, nothing beyond what we feel that the character's moral compass or what the through line is. I mean, Karen, the characters themselves, Davis is a veteran cop who's seen it all and, and you know, is looking for the easy way or, or the simpler way to do things. Karen is the keener by the book cop. Um, Brent just wants shit not to blow up you know? <laughs> and you know he's kind of the the center of uh sanity in, in all of this and you know oscar's a loose cannon and lacy just wants to be accepted these are sort of very broad stroke general ideas of who they are 
And she also just wants to belong. You know, you give them these characteristics and then you work with those within that. And and beyond that, there's no real, there's no morals at the end, although there could be sometimes. But we, you know, as, as Brent said in the live action show, uh, we're not going to do cutesy little heartfelt moments. We're going for the joke. You know, yeah. there will always be the joke. Uh, there have been heartfelt moments with Oscar and Emma, et cetera. But I mean, Beyond that, it's we're just there for the jokes and and uh, and just keeping the characters true to themselves. And then beyond that, there really isn't. You know, when you're talking about writing a screenplay, et cetera, you have to. There has to be a through line of where is your character starting and the arc of that character and where do they end and and what's happened and what's what's their through line for that episode, et cetera. Yeah. Or for for that you know movie. One thing that came up on social media a while back and people got very passionate about it. Somebody mentioned that as in the live action show, as, as the uh, seasons went on, Emma got really quite crotchety. And I hadn't really thought about it. So I went back and watched later season episodes. And in fact, everybody seems to be really mean to everybody else. And but everyone because they love the characters so much, particularly Emma. People are getting quite cross. Going, no, she's lovely. And it's like, <laughs> well, yeah, but I tried not to get involved. But I said, well, look, look at it this way. If you were all living on top of each other in a house, in an area even, and you saw each other every day and there's not a lot going, you're, you can look for reasons to have a poke or just have some fun. Um, do, do, do you see that sort of cruelty sneaking in? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because, like, yeah, that might have even be just uh, the writers in the room getting tired and jaded <laughs> in that sense because we initially season one was thirteen episodes and every uh, every year after that was eighteen episodes and then we did nineteen one year with the Christmas episode so eighteen episodes is a lot a lot of material so by the end by the end of a season you know you're running out of creative juices and gas especially later seasons I remember in season six. We started to story development ideas outside of the writers' room. We we went to the deck where you know the, uh, the condos where we were all staying just to find fresh spaces where we could get our minds going uh-huh. creatively. Yeah. Because you just after a while you just start to so yeah it could be just basically the writers were starting to get jaded and so the characters got a little <laughs> jaded too in the sense of digging each other a little more or you know. That sort of thing. I, I kind of remember a time when we were, I don't know if the word is meaner, but I mean, it was a little <laughs> bit more, a little bit more sarcasm in, in the humor, et cetera. But that's, that's part of the deal, I guess, part of how it works. So now, but now, now it's funny that it's interesting that, you know, fans or people outside of that see that because then you go, oh, oh yeah, maybe that was us. Maybe that was a, a moment of sarcasm. Do you, do you ever have that sort of one-upmanship when you're doing it? Does, does that sort of frustrations that if somebody does a good joke, so you've got to up it, maybe, oh, I'll get you. Does that ever happen? No. I Again, earlier when I was in the first couple of years, I might have felt that. And I think the reason I might have felt that too is because I felt insecure about what I was contributing to the room. Mm. You know, in the sense of... Uh, you know, presenting a script, and I think every writer had has had that happen to him. Or you would write a script, and then it would go in for the 
polish with all the writers and the script would get shredded. It'd be pulled apart. All the scenes would be rewritten. And that's when you come out of there crushed going, oh my God, I'm horrible. You know, they totally shredded my script. There's nothing left that I wrote in there that's mine. But now, I, I and again, it's part of the process. You give up that preciousness. It's, it really becomes a, a group thing and a hive thing to create a script. And, you know, we've had writers who have had scripts that it, have been taken apart. And you just kind of tell them that's the process. Every, it happens to everyone. And don't feel, you know, we don't feel you're less of a writer for it. It's just how the process works. And, and But I think maybe earlier on, that would have been the case where I felt that I wasn't contributing and that, you know, I didn't have any jokes to add to this, but now it's just like, it's a big hive. Some days I'll have the jokes. Some days, you know, I might not be as creative and I might not get anything in there, but that's just the way it is. I do get uh, a little defensive sometimes if I have an idea for something and then the group's like, no, and we think it should go this way. And I'll sit there and my gut will just like, ah, and then I have to, say to myself this is all for the better <laughs> let it go and you just kind of go all right all right and then it, it works out it always works out but it's just you're you're kind of like ah that's a good idea ah, and then that's it's part of the process yeah ego's got to go away i recently took a poll of my readers favorite 100 episodes and number one favorite was um uh get the f off my lawn <laughs> Everybody loves that. Literally every scene was voted for. <laughs> and I was wondering whether that was because it's slightly naughtier. It's got that sort of yeah, right the edge. sort of thing going on. And there was a few of those in later seasons, I noticed. And actually, think, thinking about it, there's, is there any pressure on that? So, you, Especially in animated now, you, there's so many different shows like Family Guy and uh, American Dad or King of the Hill previously, whatever, that are slightly, well, are very naughty in some ways in South Park. Is there any pressure to, to sort of make it a little bit more adult or keep it family orientated? We actually had a discussion about that because because of exactly that. When, when they were marketing um, the animation show, it was, I mean, it's very much like the live action show uh, in the sense that it's fairly wholesome i guess you'd say and animation now isn't there there's you're talking about family guy etc and and they push the envelope and so the feedback was this doesn't push the envelope what's the deal you know we, we kind of stood alone in that sense and it's hard it's hard it's a, you know it's hard i don't want, i don't want to say it's hard to defend that it's hard to take that because it's like well with the track record we've had uh, and us writing it, we really believe in what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's talk of, well, what do we do? And, and, you know, God bless Brent and, and he's maintained. We've run into this, even throughout the live action, we've run into this idea that, well, there's not a lot going on if you want to go with that saying, but it's one of those things where Brent has been pressured by outside forces, even with, the first season, even with the first couple of episodes of the show, even with the first season, that uh, he needs to change things because this isn't working. Mm. And he's always stuck with his guns. Like even first season, there were people when it was first aired that said, bury this on a Friday night at 11 p.m. because it's terrible. And then, you know, we get the highest ratings uh, first night of any Canadian show at that time. I mean, there have been yeah. other shows right now with huge ratings. 
So, you know, all these outside voices telling you to do these things uh, because that's what the market demands. You know, Brent's always gone with his gut and went, no, this is this is I believe what we're doing is is good. Yeah, I see what we're doing is good. My personal opinion is, is we're good. And, you know, you kind of trust that. So he's been really very good with that. And so even in discussing the animation, it's like, what do we do? And he's like, no, this is what we are. To change it, first of all, also if you have a fan base, to change it you know, is, is uh, kind of a slap in the face to your fan base who loves what you do. And the second thing is, you know, if you're going to do that, you're listening to people who their opinion is as valid or in, invalid as, as yours is in that sense. So trust trust your gut and do what you do. We had a lot of feedback. It's funny because, because um, I don't know if Brent told you this. When we wrote the movie, we had a lot of feedback and a lot of notes that were saying, this is just not good. And Brent and I had a lot of conversations about, I think, well, what's wrong with that? I, I don't want to remove that. I think that's, you know, and, and on and on and on. And so they did a test audience run in Toronto and it got one of the highest ratings. The company that did the test, it got one of the highest ratings of any movie they'd ever done. And uh, there was even people were applauding at the end of the test run. Um, and so Brent messaged me immediately afterwards and he goes, oh, my God, you aren't going to believe this. And, and so after that, it was like we have to trust our gut on these things. Like what we really feel strongly about, you have to go with, you know. So it's the same thing with the animation. You know, the market demands this. Well, you know, that's what you read, but you don't know about people out there that, aren't looking for that market, you know, like yeah. corn gas, you know, that will latch onto the show because it is different and it is, you know, and you just have to trust that. Was the jump between the show and the movie or and, or the show and the animated, was either harder? A movie, it could be perceived as needing to be a much bigger thing. And it, was that harder than sort of developing the animated idea? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh and we didn't have a lot to base anything off of because there weren't a lot of TV shows that were converted into movies. I mean, there was basically uh, Sex in the City turned into movies and uh, uh, The Simpsons uh, was animated into a movie. Or the Brady Bunch was turned into a movie, but it was a, that was a parody movie. Mm. So we had not a lot to base off of, but we, had, we sat and had conversations about, well, what does this need to be? And we all knew that, you know, you had to, you know, we talked about you have to do two things. You have to honor the fan base because that's what you're doing the movie for really in, initially is you have a fan base that is expecting something. So you still want to respect the television show in that sense. But at the same time, when you go to a movie, you don't want to watch a TV show. You want you want a bigger, broader experience. So we had to marry those two, which is a challenge. Uh, and also, you don't want to just make it, uh, you know, an hour and a half episode of TV. You want something bigger to ha to come of all this. Yeah. And so that was the discussion in the room. What do we do to this? And and also in the TV show, we had episodes of the show that were the whole cast and community. The storyline was gathered around one one singular idea. Uh, an example of that is um, go for it. Yeah. You know, uh, where uh, Hank's dreaming this whole thing and all this plot revolves around this election and all these things happening. Uh, the other one was Brent's 40th birthday episode. Yeah. Where 
all of the storylines revolved around Brent's birthday, getting a birthday card, the cake, you know, Brent's whiskey, the, the whiskey he was going to celebrate with the fireworks, all of those things and all those plots came around that. And so that was kind of the idea with the movie is we needed one all encompassing idea for all of the cast and community to build around, which is basically the town is broke and going to now get bought up and we have to do something about it, you know? And so each character had some aspect of that uh, to work with in that sense. So, you know, that's kind of what we started with was we needed a bigger, broader um, storyline, a little bigger than life. And and then also something that all the characters had to deal with this one situation. So that was, that's, you know, how we work things out. It was a really challenging experience breaking that. Uh, quite simply because there was so much going on and you had 90 minutes of, of uh, story to, to create. So, were, were there any other ideas that you had that might have made the, or, or didn't make the cut or almost made the cut rather than the town going broke scenario? Yeah, we talked, I think we tossed around a few others. Um, but I think we arrived pretty quick at like I mean we 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 started initially with the we need an all encompassing like we that came about pretty quickly and then it, but we arrived at that pretty quick because and it's interesting again all, all of these things happen storylines for episodes etc happen with talking about things in the room just personal experiences in the room so I grew up in a small town Brent grew up in a small town and I remember just driving through Saskatchewan. I don't know if you've ever been to Saskatchewan, very flat prairie, like a lot of small towns and a lot of small towns that disappeared or, or were three buildings or oh. et cetera. My cousins lived in St. Benedict, Saskatchewan farming community. And the town of St. Benedict was literally four buildings and a grain elevator, <laughs> you know, and that was it. And, you know, those, a lot of those towns dried up to be ghost towns. And so the idea was basically, well, Dog River is a small community. Small communities are threatened as people head for the cities, et cetera. So what would threaten them? How could they continue to survive? And so, you know, that's just a conversation that came about from us living in that province and, and knowing what happens or what could potentially happen. So, uh, I think other ideas were floated, but they didn't float for long or stick around for long. It, we've arrived at that pretty quick. I did want to get to Saskatchewan the first time. I came to see Brent do stand-up two years ago. I asked somebody, so how do I get to, to I can never pronounce, is it Rolo? Is that how you pronounce it? Rolo, yeah. E. And he said, oh, you can. It's, it's like three days by donkey, and then you go, <laughs> you got to get a tractor from there. Uh, you get there within the week because well, I've only got three days. So I um, that was the closest I got. Yes, I'd, I'd love to go. Just get that sort of idea of what it's like. And it was uh, during the show. It was fascinating because they, uh, again, one of those things that was just amazing to me was, and the response of people to the show was, um, I mean, the the set was built. The gas station and the ruby were built along the highway, a highway. And so after the season one and season two had shot people driving by would literally see it and stop pull over and get out and start poking around so they had to hire 24 hour security oh yeah because people were trying to get in they were poking the <laughs> windows and doing stuff and so they had to have somebody there to and a lot of people just wanted to take pictures yeah. you know go hey look what i found 
Um, and so what started to happen was they were doing tour buses through from Regina out to Rolo and they would drive by the house that is Oscar and Emma's house and the hotel bar and the police station and people would just walk around and take pictures all throughout Rolo of all the places and or go into the hotel bar which was an actually a hotel bar oh yeah and they would they would have a beer they'd have to have a drink in the hotel bar mm. you know to say that they you know and it is it was a live set it was an actual building they shot in which was one of the biggest challenges of the show because in the summertime it was so hot in there oh really yeah, <laughs> there was no air conditioning in the old hotel bar. So when they shot in there, after every time they'd shot, they'd shoot and they had to turn around and reset things and relight things. They'd just blow air through the place just to because it would get so hot with all the lights and because it was so stifling. But it was uh, the town. It was amazing. And people would be able to see scenes getting shot. You know, they'd have to stand a distance away and be quiet, et cetera. But uh, it was amazing just to see people just wandering around, taking pictures and and it was uh, sad when, for a lot of people, when they tore down the the gas station and the yeah. the a ruby set. People don't realize that that's gone. Like people keep asking me, said, "Oh, is it still there?" I think, no, it's gone. Which is which is a shame. But apparently, it was on was it some marshland or something? And it was sing- it was on leased land, and uh, it was never built to be an actual building. So it didn't it didn't hold heat well? Didn't hold uh, air conditioning well? Soggy. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and the other thing was, I mean, it got rat infested. Uh, the, there was talk that somebody wanted to pick up the building and move it and actually turn it into a Ruby restaurant. Oh, yeah. But there was really no building to move. I mean, it wasn't really a building in that sense. You know, it was just a set. So yeah. eventually it just ran its course. And, and uh, you know, they were still paying for the lease of the land, et cetera, and determining what they wanted to do. And after the movie was done, I mean, it was leased for that long because there was still that sense of, Hey, maybe we'll make a movie. And then after the movie was done, there was no real need for it in that sense. Yeah. So it's something that get, comes around. There's so many people that say, I've driven past and it's not there. So, the hotel bar at one point or not the hotel bar, the police station at one point was an actual souvenir shop, ice cream shop place. And a lot of people stopped in there. The police police station was up for sale recently. And mm-hmm. I looked at it at, on, on the, um, one of the websites had it on and for the price it was up english house prices are horrendous mm-hmm. so i i could have sold my place and bought it quite easily i was like mm. I, I spoke to lawn and mentioned it to him and he said uh, you don't want it it's <laughs> i've been in it it's horrible it's falling apart <laughs> it's yeah i was gonna say structurally i don't think there's a lot i mean you you would be basically paying for a little foundation maybe and then the rest of it, you'd have to rebuild it you would really yeah. have to <laughs> i think it's a neat building i think it'd be really great if you renovated the inside and turned it into a really great you know home yeah. uh, i i was in there one time in the off season just to look around etc and it was in pretty rough shape really yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad i didn't invest then that would look horrible in my portfolio <laughs> you uh did you see the contest that we had in Climax, Saskatchewan? I, is that where they win, win a house? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I saw the videos of the, the people that won it. And you had to play the game, didn't you, online? Yeah, there was, there was two games and uh, a couple from Quebec, I think, won. But he, he made it his life's goal to, to win the game and win the house. And yeah. the production really 
it was kind of a promotion. It wasn't a joke, but it was kind of just a promotional a gimmick. It was a gimmick. Yeah. And, you know, their eyes widened when they realized that people seriously, and the couple moved to the town. How did they the house. They did. And, and uh, one of them worked in the bar there and one of them worked in the gas station. And, and uh, uh, apparently Fred was there for the presentation of the house. And, and he said people, they walked over to where the house was and people were from the town were like, I, my cousin can put a new roof on it. And they were helping <laughs> the people. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. And I thought it was really kind of neat that these people were like, well, I'm going to go live in a small town in Saskatchewan. I want a house. And, and their whole, they uprooted their whole lives. And now you know, they're in this community of people. Yeah. Well, that's they're, really nice. It's, it's nice to know that there's people out there who will still do things like that. Not yeah. when it happened here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're yeah, like, that's, take your roof away from you. That is the small town mentality, though, which I think yeah. is pretty neat. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. Yeah, I will make it over there one day, and I'll, I'll see it for myself. I, I'd love to come and move over. It'd make my life running the website a hell of a lot easier, too. Because <laughs> mm, yeah. I haven't even seen the animated show yet. Because I, I, yeah. I know that it's on the way. I have to sort of crib things from the net, and um, it's been a bit tricky, especially buying the DVDs and things when they go, because uh, Amazon charges about the same as a small family car for the import wow. yeah. <laughs> so i had to wait and watch until somebody's selling it secondhand oh i sold and yeah it's challenging too with the uh animation because there's such a long period of time between the writing and the production of it you know with animation which is understandable but i mean that was the change from live action because live action you wrote you know and it would go into production and be shot uh, within a span of, uh, you know, a few weeks after you've written it, yeah. at least. Uh, and here, you know, you're talking about a six-month period, or I'm not even sure what the timelines are for. But, uh, yeah, between between the writing and then the voice records and then the animation after that and, and sound correction and et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's a longer time period. So to see the, to see the actual... Uh, uh, written word produced is is a longer period of time. So, is there any anything you can um, share for what's coming that wouldn't be given too much away? Um, no, not really. I think uh, there's a. Uh, I can't. <laughs> I don't. I, it's funny because I don't know what I'm allowed to tell you. That's. I think that's the best way of putting it. Uh, I've, there's a few things that are kind of like, all right, let's keep this in house. And you're like, okay, but I can't remember exactly which ones were in which I could tease you with, but, um, uh, no, I, there's nothing I can tell you really that I can, I can, uh, just a lot of cool action, a lot of fun things that are going on, uh, drones and guns and turkeys and, and, uh, rats and, uh, what else is going on is is there any room for a suave debonair english character you might need a voice for oh well <laughs> possibly <laughs> i'm sure we can sit back and talk about it what about you oh i gotta tell you this when you're talking about inserting uh, a suave debonair englishman into the show when we wrote the live action show the president of the lamborghini club in canada sent us a picture and left Brent a note that said, if you ever need a Lamborghini for the show, let me know. And it was a picture of him 
leaning against a Lamborghini with six Lamborghinis spread out across the thing. And Brent showed me this and I laughed and said, we have to write a Lamborghini episode. And so we did, <laughs> which I got to write with Paul Mather. And uh, it was after another episode that we had spent a lot of money on the budget. And so they were like, holy crap, that was a lot of money for that last episode. And then the next episode coming out is about Lamborghinis. And they're like, holy crap, are you kidding me? <laughs> they didn't know. They weren't aware that we had sort of an in with the Lamborghini Club or whatever. Yeah. But, oh, my God, it was so funny. But that it's that's one of those situations where somebody said, hey – you know, they'll put this in the show and you're like, cool. Yeah. All right. We'll do that. So, so I don't know. Maybe we'll have the discussion, Ian, and maybe there'll be a, a voiceover from England. Oh, I, I, you know, I know, I know a few people, one in particular springs to mind. And as I say, I have lots of brown envelopes that, that can have things. In <laughs> <laughs> but then I might use those up sending them to the award people. So, you know, <laughs> Or wherever you want to place your bets, my friend. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put them all on me then. That's fine. <laughs> I really should let you go. I could. I I've got so many notes here that, um, I mean, I, I could talk to you forever. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, maybe another time. Maybe another yeah. uh, podcast down the line. Yeah, that'd be lovely. If, if there's any, I, I tell anybody, if, if, if there's anything you need me to do for you or the show or whatever. All right. Well, if we need a body buried, you're in. Nice. All right. Oh, even a nice out of that. Yeah. I'm excited about it. That's a little. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, up to, I'm up for anything. Well, I would ask you to pass along uh, gratitude and appreciation for the fans that are watching the show. It's it's uh, it reinforces what we're doing is is what we need to do in that sense. Like I said, a lot of this is trusting our guts on, on, you know, what's good or what's working. And, and when we get the response we do from fans, uh, it really warms my heart, first of all. And second of all, it just makes me feel, uh, that we're on track. We're doing the right thing, you yeah. know, and, and there's nothing I love more than hearing people quote lines of the show, especially if it's a line you've written. That's yes. my favorite part. Uh, then I'm just like, you know, victory hands in the hair. Yes, that was mine. <laughs> but just, yeah, just let the fans know that uh, we appreciate their loyalty and their their uh, love of the show. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. No worries. And well, just... Stay tuned for season three. Yeah, and, yeah. And maybe we'll chat again soon. Thanks for having me. And uh, you are, in fact, the very first guest on the show. So congratulations on that. And uh, I suppose, so there we have it, our very first interview. And the very first episode is now over. So I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget, uh, if you want to watch Corner Gas, go to Amazon Prime and watch it there. If you're uh, in Canada, you can watch it on Crave TV. Also, if you're in Canada and you fancy adopting me, please do. Send your details and uh, we'll get that sorted out. Uh, but until then, uh, hopefully we'll see you on the next episode of Corner Gas Fan Corner's Jackass Cast.